Today on Something You Should Know, when an invitation says no gifts, is it okay to bring a gift? I'll discuss several common etiquette mistakes a lot of people make. Then, the interesting ways your environment affects you and how you communicate. The best orientation for communication is sitting corner to corner, not across from each other, not right next to each other, but at a 90 degree angle, because that way we can make eye contact with each other, but we're not forced to make eye contact with each other all the time. Plus, how to take better photographs this summer. And are we creating a generation of mechanically illiterate people? I was horrified to read an article in the paper that they're having trouble training interns to do surgery because they've never used scissors. They've never used tools when they were kids. A a kid isn't going to get interested in tools if he's not exposed to them. All this today on Something You Should Know. Like you, I suppose, I hate cancer. I've lost too many people to it. And I admit to thinking how horrible that diagnosis must be. So I love hearing when there are new developments in the fight. And I don't know if you heard about this, but there is amazing health news out of Europe that's just been released about a vitamin. For the first time ever in government-sponsored cancer research, human patients taking a dietary supplement lived longer than those who did not. The research showed that this supplement, called tocotrienols, when used with the standard care for recurrent ovarian cancer patients, doubled their life expectancy. Additional tocotrienols research is showing promise for breast, colon, and lung cancers, as well as lowering bad cholesterol and improving heart health. Now, the bad news is that tocotrienols are a unique form of vitamin E, and they are likely not in the supplement you take. And you need to understand the difference. I'd like you to read Dr. Barry Tan's new book, The Truth About Vitamin E. Dr. Barry Tan is widely considered the leading authority on tocotrienols and vitamin E. Go to barrytan.com and use the promo code SOMETHING to get this free book from American River Nutrition. I've read it, and I now take tocotrienols every day. Go to barrytan.com, B-A-R-R-I-E-T-A-N, barrytan.com, and use the promo code SOMETHING. And the first 25 listeners today will also get a paperback copy. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. As you no doubt have noticed, we have several great advertisers in this podcast, many of whom use promo codes to make special offers to you to give you deals on what they're selling. And although we do put the promo codes in the show notes, we've also added something to the website to make it even easier. If you go to the website, somethingyoushouldknow.net, right there at the top in the navigation, it says promo codes. And if you click on that, it'll take you to all the recent promo codes so you can take advantage of those deals. First up today, manners still matter. And here are a few common etiquette rules that you might be unintentionally breaking. For example, you should RSVP to every invitation you get. It helps the host plan better and it shows that you are thoughtful. When an invitation says no gifts, don't bring a gift. You'll embarrass the other guests who obeyed the request. If you do want to give a gift, do it privately. Don't ask people to come to a restaurant to celebrate your husband's birthday and then expect them to pay for their own food. 
if the party was at your house, you wouldn't ask people to pay, and you shouldn't at a restaurant either. You're the host, and you should pay the bill. If you can't afford it, then invite fewer people or do it at home. Don't use a speakerphone without asking if it is okay with the other person on the other end of the line. The other person may want your call to be confidential, and they don't necessarily want other people to hear it. It's also hard to hear people clearly on a speakerphone. And don't talk about children in their presence as if they're not there. For example, instead of asking a parent, how old is little Billy, ask Billy. It's more respectful to the child, and he will most likely be happy to tell you. And don't wait to send a wedding gift until after the wedding. The notion that you have a year to send a wedding gift is not true. The gift is to celebrate the event, not the one-year anniversary of the event. Wedding gifts should be sent at the time of the wedding or brought to the event itself. And that is something you should know. Think for a moment about all the places you go, the buildings that you walk into, the rooms in those buildings, and the things in those rooms. All of these things affect you, often in ways you don't even realize. For example, where you sit in relation to others, the shape of the table you sit at, all these things have an impact on you. And here with some great insight and explanation into this and why it's so important is Lily Bernheimer. Lily is a researcher, writer, and consultant in environmental psychology. She is founding director of SpaceWorks Consulting and author of the book The Shaping of Us, How Everyday Spaces Structure Our Lives, Behavior, and Well-Being. Hi, Lily. Hi, thank you. So perhaps a good place to start this discussion of how the environment we're in affects us would be to start with the environments that we're attracted to in the first place. And you talk about something called biophilia. So let's start there with biophilia. So biophilia literally means love of nature um, or love of the living world. And what that means is that as humans, we have a sort of innate attraction to the natural world and to all sorts of elements and uh, shapes and forms that we find within it. So this brings together everything from our attraction to natural light and fire to our love of trees and water. So what we find is that when we look at the built environment and the things that are that support our well-being best in the built environment, they tend to link back to things that would have supported our survival in the evolutionary environments of our past great example of this is what I like to call uh, ninja-proof seats. You notice when you go into a restaurant, if not all the seats are taken, people will usually first take those seats where they can have their back to the wall, and they also have a good view of the door, the window, um, where they can see any sort of opportunities or threats that might be coming towards them. And I once worked in an office with a lot of computer programmers who were fighting over what they called the ninja-proof seats, which were the seats that had their back to the wall where no ninjas could sneak up from behind you. Yeah, yeah, that's very natural to want to sit in a chair 
you know, where you're not facing the wall. You want to look out the window. You want to see the view. You want to see the room. You want to you want to be able to keep your eye on things. We we believe that this goes back to this kind of really deep evolutionary instinct that when we were being chased by, you know, lions or, uh, you know, other human attackers or whoever, we would have been safest in this kind of positions in places where we knew nothing could come up from behind us and where we could also see what was coming towards us, whether that's a fort up on a hillside or a nice spot in a tree or protected space in a meadow or something. And so we also feel most um, comfortable and can uh, focus better on our work today when we're sitting in these kind of positions. One type of space or environment that's gotten a lot of press, a lot of people have talked about the idea of the open floor plan for offices where people all work together in one big room. There's actually been strong research since the 80s and going way back that showed that open plan offices are really not good for um collaboration or communication, which was the main rationale. I think there were genuinely some idealistic people who um, thought, oh, this this will be really good to change our offices in this way. This will help people collaborate and communicate. But the research from way back then has showed that that's not really the case. Um, I think what we're seeing with the open office trend is it seems in the short term to have economic advantages for companies. It tends to be um, less expensive and, uh, and you know, you can fit a lot more people into the same space It's if it's an open office than if it's a closed office. But over time, I think a lot of companies will see that hurting their productivity because it's very, very harmful to our ability to focus when we have so much interruptive noise around us all the time. But even this idea that the open offices would help collaboration, what we find is that people often are kind of um, retreating and becoming more reclusive because they're overstimulated. So they end up talking to each other less because uh, they're they're just overstimulated and they kind of shut down a bit. Well, it's always interested me that offices are set up, you know, one way. Somebody decides, okay, this is what the lighting in the office is going to be. This is what the temperature is going to be. And the thermostat is locked so nobody can mess with it that that it's kind of one size fits all but but I know from just watching people that everybody has their own preferences for lighting and temperature and things like that and what we find with a variety of environmental factors whether it's noise or lighting or temperature is that when people have an ability to have some control over their environment that gives them a sense of agency even if it's still a little bit too hot or a little bit too loud the fact that they can open a window or move to a different spot um will will um make them happier more satisfied and and better able to concentrate talk about fractals not everybody knows what they are but But it's interesting how they play a role in creating the environments we create. The easiest way to think of a fractal is when you look at the overall shape of a tree, you have the branches and then you have smaller branches and then you have twigs and the overall form of the tree is kind of repeated in miniature when you look at the the shape of the branches and then at the shape of the twigs. So, so that's basically what a fractal is. We find fractals 
all throughout nature. And we also find them throughout the um, sort of traditional historical architecture of all cultures around the world. So when you're in a typical older house, you'll find moldings on all of the window frames and door frames, those little sort of like funny wooden things that stick out above and below your windows and, and above your doors. And the shape of those moldings actually tend to have this same sort of fractal geometry in them where there's there's these little details that are sort of smaller versions of the bigger shape. So when you think about, well, why do we go to this extent of um, adorning our, why did we historically go to this extent of adorning our windows and doors with these strange shapes? We believe it's because those forms actually remind us of the fractal geometry that we find in nature. And uh, that means they have this kind of calming and um, uh, stimulating impact on us. When we look um, at nature, when we look at trees or plants or things like that, um, it's not just that we like natural forms and shapes. They have this ability to calm us and also um, to increase our ability to focus at the same time. There was a particularly famous uh, study of this where they compared hospital patients recovering from surgery. Uh, half of those patients were in a room where they had a view of trees, and half of those patients were in a room where they had a view of a brick wall. And the patients with the uh, in the room with the view of the trees not only recovered more quickly, but also experienced less pain in the process. I'm talking with Lily Bernheimer. She's a researcher, consultant, and founder of Spaceworks Consulting. And she's also author of the book, The Shaping of Us, How Everyday Spaces Structure Our Lives, Behavior, and Well-Being. You know, now that my boys are getting older, I am so glad that I have photos and videos of them when they were younger. But there's also something about a painting of your kids or your pet, or your wedding day, a painting to hang on the wall. And I just discovered PaintYourLife.com. At Paint Your Life, you can get a portrait hand-painted from any photo at an affordable price. So I had them paint a portrait of my two sons, and it's fantastic. In fact, you can see it on the Something You Should Know website on the page for this episode down at the bottom of the page. This is a true painting done by hand by a world-class artist created from a favorite photo. It makes the perfect gift. You choose the artist and you work with them throughout the process until every detail is perfect. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 30% off your painting. That's right, 30% off and free shipping. To get this special offer and to learn more, text SYSK to 484848. That's SYSK to 484848. Text SYSK for something you should know. SYSK to 484848. Message and data rates may apply. So Lily, talk about the space around us, the environment we're in when we're traveling on the road. 
So with street spaces, there's some really interesting research coming out of the Netherlands. We find that when we remove some of the stop signs and stoplights from our intersections, surprisingly, this can encourage us to drive and bike and walk more safely in those intersections. It's really counterintuitive. You would think it'd be more dangerous, but when we take away some of the rules and signs, it actually encourages people to pay more attention to each other and their surroundings and to be safer. Um, Then when we look at workspaces, we also see that when people are able to feel more like themselves in their workspace, to personalize their workspace and kind of make it more specific to who they are, to the needs of um, the specific people and purpose of that workspace, um, that that has really great benefits for well-being and for company productivity. And then when we look at housing, um, we also find that when we design housing in a way to Uh, you know, encourage people to connect with their communities, to be less anonymous, to know who their neighbors are. Um, That has really great well-being benefits. And beyond that, when people are encouraged to take a bigger role in, um, you know, sort of being part of housing themselves in uh, shaping their own homes to meet their needs, that that has great well-being and potentially um, sustainability benefits as well. Are there specific shapes that affect us in specific ways that we might not be aware of? Absolutely. Absolutely. So rounder forms tend to have a more calming effect on us. And then more angular forms can make us feel a little bit uh, competitive or anxious. Um, Things like what? Particularly, you know, even just um, say you're sitting at a square table instead of a, a round table. A round table is really good if you're trying to relate to someone in a way where you wanna be friendly and communicative. But if you wanna be competitive, if you're gonna play a game of chess or have some sort of um, uh, formal business negotiation, then you wanna be at a square table. Um, we tend to think of sofas, couches, as being a good place to sit down and have a chat with people. But actually, the best orientation for um, communication is sitting corner to corner. So, you know, if you if you have a square table, you're sitting on, on one corner and I'm sitting at the adjacent corner, not across from each other, not right next to each other, but at a 90 degree angle. Because that way we can make eye contact with each other, but we're not forced to make eye contact contact with each other all the time because that's kind of competitive to be just head to head directly making eye contact all the time. Well, you were talking earlier about traffic and this applies to that, right? The the angles of a four-way stop, which we have in the United States versus say the roundabout that is more common in Great Britain. 
So, you know, I lived in the UK for many years and um, there it's very typical um, that an intersection will have a roundabout in it. So in the US, we tend to have these four-way intersections. You go up, you stop, you have to wait for the other cars to go. Whereas there, it's this um, circular sort of you go in and you go roundabout with all the other cars. Um, so I was really curious, you know, why why do we have this cultural difference in the way we handle our intersections? Um, so I looked into it, and um, it turns out that roundabouts are actually statistically much safer than the four-way intersections that we have here. When you're at a four-way intersection, there's like a huge number of uh, collision points that you can have. And at a roundabout, just the number of possible points that two cars or a car and a person could collide is way, way lower. And the reason that the British uh, ended up uh, deciding to use roundabouts was that uh, they have a national health system that is, you know, a publicly funded system for healthcare. And so when the government was looking at, well, how should we handle roads? They realized that roundabouts were um, just much safer. And since they were paying for medical bills, they said, well, there's, there's no two ways about this. We've got to use roundabouts. So it's like spatially this incredibly sort of British eccentric um, communal seeming thing. And physically, it's actually less confrontational and means that it, it's much safer. I thought it was interesting. You talk about how environments affect people with dementia. And I thought it was interesting because if it has that effect on them, it probably has a similar effect on all of us. So typically when when people are suffering from something like dementia in the US we tend to kind of put people in institutionalized settings and um those institutionalized settings look very different from where people with dementia have been used to living and spending most of their time. And, you know, when people have dementia, they are really thinking back to the past a lot. They're not able to, um, you know, deal with new situations and learn new things very well. And then you take this person whose cognitive resources are are really suffering and put them in an environment which is very monotonous. You know, uh, hospitals, places like this, it tends to be, they tend to be very colorless, um, long corridors with lots of halls. And, um, you know, every, every hallway, every doorway looks the same. It's very easy to get lost, even for someone who doesn't have dementia. So over in the Netherlands, they have developed a really interesting, uh, different approach to uh, caring for people with dementia. Uh, it's a project called Hogewijk. I'm probably not saying that completely right from the Dutch. Um, but they have basically created a little village that looks just like uh, a you know sort of residential neighborhood that an older Dutch person would be used to spending their time in. The housing facilities, you know, look kind of like a typical Dutch home with a with a dining room and a living room. And then there's little streets that they can walk around on, and even a little store that they can go and kind of buy groceries in. And they're having they're finding this has really great well-being benefits because. It's a more diverse and um, naturalistic environment, and that means that people who are, you know, having more difficulty finding their way around are much easier to orient 
themselves um, to feel comfortable. And um, it, it's having really great well-being benefits. I also thought it was interesting and a little weird, was a lot weird, was this half a house project. So, so talk, talk about the half a house project. Uh, this was pioneered by an architect called Alejandro Aravena, uh, who's from Chile. And um, what they did is they they were working with a low-income community, and they found that they could build a very affordable, uh, economically priced housing by literally building half of a house and then enabling the families to build the other half of the house themselves. So it sounds kind of crazy. Who wants half a house? <laughs> what are you going to do with half a house? But what they found was that uh, a lot of the people living in this community were, you know, builders or had family members who were builders and had those skill- skills themselves. So when they built them the half of the house that had all the plumbing and, you know, bathrooms and everything, and then let the people build the other half themselves, they ended up with a much more beautiful, interesting looking neighborhood because it was it was diverse and mixed and interesting. And people were also able to uh, create a home that was better suited to their needs because they were involved in the process of building it themselves. Um, so this uh, brings together two things that environmental psychology research have found or has found are really important. Uh, the first is called ordered complexity. And um, basically, we're really drawn to a balance of order and complexity in our environments. We like things to be, you know, kind of organized and we don't want every house to look like completely different from the house next to it. We want there to be some common themes, but we also like complexity. We find it boring when I was saying like in, in, a, in a hospital institutional building, like every door looks the same, every corridor looks the same. That makes us feel kind of like disoriented and confused and lost. So we like a balance of order and complexity. And when people are uh, empowered to um, to shape spaces themselves, this also uh uh, brings about something called collective efficacy, which is the sort of communal power to be creative, to create and um, build our own spaces. And when communities have higher rates of collective efficacy, they also have tend to have less litter and vandalism, uh, less less violent crime, and to feel more empowered to um, to tackle uh, social and environmental problems. So. You know, that's kind of one little case study that I think really gets at the heart of the kind of approach we should be taking to try to enhance well-being. Isn't it amazing how we're so, most of us anyway, are so unaware of these things and yet they have such an important impact on us. And I appreciate you sharing all of this. Lily Bernheimer has been my guest She is the founding director of Spaceworks Consulting, and she's author of the book, The Shaping of Us, How Everyday Spaces Structure Our Lives, Behavior, and Well-Being. And there is a link to her book in the show notes. Thank you, Lily. Great talking to you. Have you ever asked yourself, "Uh, why didn't I think of that? Or have you used something that made your life so much easier and wondered, who came up with that? The protection of our intellectual property is what helps great ideas come to life. We all have our own intellectual property, but many of us never follow through with trademarking and copywriting and patenting our brilliance. I'd like you to subscribe to Season 2 of Stroke of Genius 
This is a great podcast where host Andrea Matho chats one-on-one with some of the world's great innovators about how intellectual property protections helped push their ideas to greater heights. The guests on Season 2 of Stroke of Genius include author and thought leader Temple Grandin, who you're about to hear in this podcast, but on a different subject. Also, Lisa DeLuca and inventor Kenton Lee. Listen and learn how these innovators were inspired to turn their thoughts into things. Subscribe to Stroke of Genius on Apple Podcasts at ipoef.org or your favorite podcast platform. This is a segment about unintended consequences regarding something I bet you never really thought much about. And what's so interesting, it doesn't really make sense until it does. And it will by the end of this segment. We talk a lot today about the importance of innovation and invention and new ideas. And yet we have raised an entire generation or two of young people who couldn't actually invent or build anything. They don't have the skills. I mean, to oversimplify, they don't know how to hammer a nail into a piece of wood. They aren't taught the hands-on skills of using tools or using their hands or how things actually work. The results of this affect you and me every day in some very interesting ways. And here sounding the alarm is someone I want you to meet. Her name is Temple Grandin. You may have heard her name before. Temple is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University, and she was the subject of an Emmy and Golden Globe award-winning biographical film. She is one of the first individuals on the autism spectrum to publicly share her insights from her personal experience of being autistic. And she is the subject and author of several books, including one called Calling All Minds, How to Think and Create Like an Inventor. Hi, Temple. It's wonderful to be here. Before we get into this important concern that you're talking about, I want to talk about inventors and inventions, and I know... You have invented things in your area of expertise, which is animals and livestock, and you come from a family of inventors. My grandfather was the uh, co-inventor of the autopilot for airplanes, and he worked with a man who was probably definitely on the autism spectrum who came up with this crazy, totally original idea of three little coils to sense the magnetic field to guide the airplane. Everybody else in the past was trying to wire the plane's controls directly to the magnetic compass, and you'd have problems with it gyrating all over the place. And my grandfather looked at this idea and goes, hmm, I can make that work. That's the different kinds of minds working together. Uh, he was the more you know, regular type of engineer. And then you have some people that are visual thinkers who just think up um, totally new things. I'm a visual thinker. That helped me in my work with cattle. And when I first started in the 70s, I didn't know that other people were not visual thinkers. So it was obvious to me to look at what the cattle were seeing. And they'd see a coat on a fence and they would stop. And other people were not noticing that. It was obvious to me. And then you've got your computer programmers. They're going to be your more mathematical thinkers. They think in patterns instead of pictures. Well, that's interesting and and important, I imagine, to realize that people think differently. And it's probably important to know how you individually think. I think it helps because the different kinds of thinkers can work together. You take somebody like Steve Jobs. He was an artist, not a programmer. 
That's why your phone is easy to use. And then the more mathematically inclined engineers had to make that phone work. That's an example of the different kinds of minds working together, and the skills can complement each other. But the first step you have to do is realize that these different kinds of thought exist. That's the first step. And then you can see how the skills complement each other. So now your big concern, and I was really fascinated to learn about this because I've never really heard this discussed before, is that we have a generation, maybe two generations of kids, who have grown up without an understanding of how things work mechanically. So much emphasis is on virtual and knowledge-based thinking, but kids don't use tools the way they used to. Kids don't know how things work in a mechanical way anymore. I was horrified to read an article in the paper that they're having trouble training interns to do surgery because they've never used scissors. They've never used tools when they were kids. And we also have a gigantic shortage of skilled trades right now, plumbers, electricians. um, And when I was working on uh, designing facilities at the big meatpacking plants, I worked with skilled tradespeople that were brilliant. And they would just come up with all kinds of clever ways to do things. And the problem is those people are not getting replaced. That's the problem. And so some of the very clever mechanical engineering, like some of the specialized equipment for processing pork, for example, is all made in Europe. And the reason it's made in Europe is because we've taken skilled trades out of the schools. Now, there's a few schools that are starting to put this back in now, and Texas has been one of the leaders in this. Well, and I imagine this has a lot to do with understanding what kind of thinker you are that you were talking about a few moments ago. Well, absolutely it is. I mean, some of your best skilled tradespeople are visual thinkers. And one of the problems they've got today is these kids absolutely can't do algebra. I can't do algebra because there's nothing to visualize. And I'm seeing smart kids getting screened out, ending up in the basement playing video games because nobody thought to teach them a trade or even expose them to a trade. And this brings up another thing. How does a kid get involved in a certain job? I ended up in the cattle industry because I got exposed to it when I was a teenager. Kids have to be exposed to careers in order to get interested in any career. You are probably a good example to explore this because a lot of people work with cattle. Not, but not, yeah, everybody, not everybody invents things and, 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 and thinks the way you think that works in cattle. So what is it about you and the way you think that's different than other people in your industry? Well, I like to make things. When I was a very young child, um, I made bird kites, I made parachutes. In fact, all of my childhood projects are in Calling All Minds. And I had to tinker to get my bird kite to work. And it's got little wingtips, similar to an airliner has. I had to tinker with a parachute, so I put a framework on it so it would open and the strings wouldn't tangle. I had to tinker to get these things to work. I guess a lot of the thinking today is, well, you know, we don't have to learn those kinds of skills because computers will do that, AI will do that, and people don't need to know how to do that. They just need to know how to think. Nonsense. Nonsense. (laughs) In fact, the jobs that are going to get taken over by artificial intelligence, I've been following this really carefully, are high-end, narrow knowledge jobs. Let's look at medicine, dermatology, radiology, radiology. endocrinology, internal medicine, that's going to get taken over by AI first. I don't think um, AI is going to fix a broken water system in a city anytime soon. You know what's so interesting to me is that when you talk to people 
almost everybody has an idea. They thought of this thing. They thought of an idea. Nothing yep. much ever comes of it, but, but everybody has that idea. Well, lots of people come up with ideas and they, they don't do anything with it. Um, when I was a child, I had an idea for a way to make um, old dungarees. Blue jeans were called dungarees in the 50s. And, um, you know, now it's fashionable to have them ripped and have them all faded. But in the 50s, it wasn't. So, the, you know, the denim would get white around the knees. So I thought if we could have dungaree spray, there'd be a dye and you could spray it on your, on your blue jean knees and make them new again. That was an idea I had when I was about eight. I had no way of implementing it. That's a good idea, actually. It's a really good idea. Back then. Yeah, that back then it was a really good idea because I could make the old dungarees, is what we used to call them, look new again with dungaree spray. But as you say, if kids are not exposed to this, if they don't know how to work with tools, if they don't understand how mechanical things go together and work together, if they're never exposed to it, the potential that they may have in working in those things will never be revealed. We've got kids grow. I go to autism meetings, and I'll see a kid who ought to go work for Google, and he still likes to build robots and things out of Legos, but he's never used a tool. You know, when we were kids, uh, in my neighborhood, we were using tools, you know, seven and eight years old. We were using handsaw and hammer and nails and screwdrivers and stuff like that. A, a kid isn't going to get interested in tools if he's not exposed to them. And the more I'm looking into how do people get into careers, this whole thing of exposing kids to different things. And this is why I think in school it's important to have creative classes like theater and music. How would a kid know he likes music or is good at it if he never got a chance to try a musical instrument? Um, I tried uh, playing the piano. That did not work for me. I didn't have the coordination to do it right. But I was exposed to it. Also, there's uh, some research that was done that showed that a Nobel Prize winner in science was more likely to have a creative hobby like music or building things or art than just a scientist out of the um, listing in the science society. It does seem like we're in this kind of specialized world where people learn one thing, like they're, they're going to be an accountant or they're going to be a doctor. But there's some general knowledge about how the world works that's really important. Well, you're still going to have to have people to repair things. You know, somebody the other day said, well, a car is a smartphone on wheels. I go, yes, it's got computers in it, but it also has physical parts that drive, that make the car go, mechanical parts of it. And a self-driving car is going to have a lot of complicated sensors that are going to need repair because they interact with the physical environment. Right. Well, and, and think about it. There have been car repair shops and brake shops for as long as there have been cars. And while other businesses and industries have come and gone, there are still lots of very successful car repair shops and brake shops because somebody has to fix it. Somebody has to fix stuff. And in the last year and a half, I've been in three hotels where we had major water problems, all in in downtown areas and major cities. And the worst mess was in Pittsburgh when the water mains broke. And the uh, Pittsburgh Sheridan had no water for 24 hours, and we almost had to do a conference with porta-potties. There's real problems with infrastructure. I'm concerned, you know, as I travel around looking at the condition of bridges and, and, and roads and just, you know, basic infrastructure. We've got to fix this stuff. It's essential stuff. Well, part of the problem, though, is that 
a lot of people, when they hear you say, well, your kids need to be exposed to tools, well, dad may not even have any. Well, that's the problem. Now, in Calling All Minds, is a lot of the projects in their paper and just really simple things just to get kids making things. And when I did a, a book signing for Calling All Minds last year in a suburb of Colorado, I was horrified to find out that about a third of the elementary school kids that attended, and there was a whole bunch of them, several hundred of them, had never made a paper airplane. What? Yes, you heard me right. Never made a paper airplane. You know, this is one of those things that I, except for you, I've never heard anyone really address this as a serious problem. But when you think about it, when you listen to what you're saying and then apply it to the world, this is a real serious problem that most people never think about, that that we're creating a generation, maybe two generations now, of people who can't fix anything. Well, that's right. And I think it's a really big problem. And I'm very concerned about losing the skills. And then this business with the surgeons having trouble um, doing surgery uh, because they haven't made things with their hands. That's kind of shocking to discover that. And the other thing I'm concerned right now is the quality of drafting for drawing things. It has no detail in it. I looked at a set of drawings the other day for some steel work, and they didn't show things like, well, how do you bolt this uh, metal flange to the concrete wall? You haven't shown the fasteners. This drawing has no detail. It's horrible. Well, I know, and, and everybody knows, that in, in many families, in many communities, in many high schools, the preferred outcome is that after high school, you go to college. And from college, you take that knowledge and apply it to your profession, and off you go. Sort of in second place is if college isn't for you, then okay, then go learn a trade. But it's almost as if that's a disappointment. And what you're saying is not only is it not a disappointment, it may be the preferred path for people who have those skills and who have been exposed to those skills. And the skilled trades are the one area where you can get a job for life with good pay and good health benefits for the rest of your life and the thing that also bothers me is when I read the business magazines, they don't, don't seem to discuss this. But most people who write in business magazines haven't worked out in the skilled trades world, where I spent 25 years. So summarize up here, what's, what's your message? What's your call to arms here? My call to arms is we've got to um, you know, expose kids to the high-end skilled trades, because we really need people to do what, um, fix things. Plumbing, electrical, heating and air conditioning, mechanics to fix all sorts of things, um, uh, welders who can read drawings, because there's a whole big line of what I call clever mechanical things that we don't know how to do anymore. Some really high-tech machine stuff, super machine stuff, that we know how to do. We know how to do some of the lower-tech stuff, but you take really specialized equipment that's super clever mechanical engineering That's a skill we're losing, and the Europeans are doing it. And the reason they're doing it is because they have not taken out skilled trades. That's why they're doing it. That's why a food processing plant, in some cases now, will be made with all European uh, equipment, uh, even though it's very expensive, because companies like, I mean, countries like Holland and Germany and Italy have kept their skilled trades. And then you get uh, certain kids going into that. I'm the kind of kid that's good at that sort of stuff because I'm a visual thinker. 
And our educational system is screening out visual thinkers because they can't do algebra. You don't need algebra for skilled trades. You need old-fashioned, find the area of a circle, measuring things. You need to have that, angles and percents. You need to do that sort of stuff. But too many smart kids are getting screened out because they can't do algebra. Now, if you want to invent quantum computing, then you're going to need algebra. That's real high-end, fancy stuff. That's way beyond me. But we still have to have somebody who's going to keep the electricity on in the building and fix things and invent new mechanical things that we need. Well, this is so important. And, and as you said in the beginning, you know, people don't really think about this, but this, this idea that we need people to fix things. And when we emphasize that everybody goes to college and everybody works in a profession and there's less emphasis on putting people in skilled trade positions to fix things and to make things, that that's a real problem that we need to address. Temple Grandin has been my guest. Uh, her book is called Calling All Minds, How to Think and Create Like an Inventor. There's a link to that book and also a link to Temple's website, templegrandin.com. You'll find all of that in the show notes. Thank you, Temple. Well, thank you so much for having me. When you're out and about taking photographs this summer, there are a few things to keep in mind that will give you much better pictures in the end, according to Mike Newton, who is author of the ebook Hacking Photography. First of all, straighten your lines. Just take an extra second to make sure that horizontal lines are horizontal and vertical lines are vertical. It will make a big difference. Shoot from interesting perspectives. Most of the pictures people see are taken from the eye level of the photographer when he or she is just standing shooting a picture, which is the same viewpoint that we see 99% of our lives from. So it's no surprise that when you go to the top of a huge building and look down at a city, it's visually stunning because we don't see that perspective. Different perspectives make an interesting picture. Eliminate the clutter. This is really important because the best images are ones that are simple and have breathing room for the subject. You should try to find the simplest background possible and get close and then get even closer. Closer is always better. Sometimes really close is even better. It's okay to cut off foreheads, legs, or someone's lower half every now and then. Try getting a close-up of someone's face from the eyebrows to the mouth. And that is something you should know. Ratings and reviews help this podcast, and and we read them. We enjoy reading reviews because it helps us make a better podcast. So wherever you are listening to this podcast, please take a moment and leave a rating and or review. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.